This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. From the southernmost point of door to the lands of always winter, what is west of west and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsock, and we are finishing up season one of our deep dive rewatch into HBO's Game of Thrones. It's a fire and blood type of day. And it is just me today breaking uh, things down with you. Getting ready for some cool guests in season two, some returning uh, co-hosts. It's going to be a lot of fun, but we're concentrating today on the end of season one. This has been a lot of fun and, quite frankly, uh, rewarding to go back and review the show on a smaller level, a micro level, those themes, those lessons, the big moments, uh, all those kind of things that keep us just so enthralled with the show, which is why I think it's valuable. Ten years later, essentially, we, we are coming up this this next summer. will be ten years, spring to a dream of spring of the, of the universe. Ten years that this show ended our lives. And for many of you, the books before that, for some like me, the books right around the same time. This story, this world, we love it so much. And as we wrap up season one, you know, that's just, uh, it's fun to kind of look back and uh, think about this season, what it it means and what it did to us uh, as fans or brought you in. Change your uh, change your world, quite frankly. If I I'm gonna be that I'm gonna be that grand. It changed my world, and it did. It did. I already love Star Wars. I'm a Star Wars guy. But in 2011, Star Wars was yeah. I got the Clone Wars, and I got some movies in this world I love. But they're not gonna make any more. George is not gonna do that. Sale will happen. Now the sale's already in the works. We just didn't know, but the sale. Uh, happened in 2012, but it was Game of Thrones that just kind of, for me personally, reignited my nerd fires. You know, I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not the greatest human being in, at all, but I'm, I'm well rounded. All right, I'll give myself some credit. I'm well. I love sports. I love I love the Miami Dolphins. Well, that's painful, but I love I love the New York Yankees. I love baseball. I love playing sports. I'm into that. I'm into Star Wars. I'm a nerd. I'm not a I'm not a jack, but I I, I can hang with those types. But in 2011. The nerd stuff, and I, and I can use that word. And I grew up in the '80s, where that was not a good word to be called. You know, it was it was a problem. It, you know, I was bullied for it. I wear a Star Wars shirt to school. I was bullied for it. 2011, Game of Thrones shows back up, and it just kind of changed the way I went about my day, and entered a period of time where I didn't realize it, but sports 
Uh, and again, as long as he's, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a paint my body, run to a stadium kind of sports fan, but I'm a passionate baseball fan. I love the sport. Around the time Game of Thrones emerged and, and, and came into my life, I got to tell you, I slowly started to pull off of uh, sports. And I don't mean, by the way, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pitting the two against each other because quite frankly, I think it's the same muscle. The nerd muscle is a lot wider and deeper than people want to give that word credit for, you know? Yeah, all the people that made fun of me uh, growing up in the eighties and, and, and early nineties, nerd. You know they. You know I may have had Luke Skywalker posters on my wall. They had Jose Canseco posters on their wall, and I had Canseco poster on my wall too. So, it's the same muscle. But you know what I mean for for me, and, I, and some of you out there are probably in the same boat. Like suddenly it was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This part of my life, it, 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 and you know we'd come out of the prequel era. We we'd come out of the Lord of the Rings films. Like that kind of, it, it spiked a little bit, but then we started to come back down again. And it was like, is this, it's always present, but is, is loving this stuff, is it a thing of my past? Is it just something that's kind of there? No, suddenly it was at the forefront. And we got dragons, we got magic spells, we got swords, we got sandals, we got it all. And, and that's what I, it's one of the things I don't talk about a lot about season one of Game of Thrones, what it did for me personally to kind of just reawaken that, 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 uh, I keep saying nerd muscle, just almost out of fun, but you know, that, pop culture loving heart that I am just so proud of now and always was secure in what it was. I, I take the, I take the barbs and the slings and arrows for being a star Wars fan. And but case you'd find someone, they'd find someone that'd be like, Oh, I like, I like star Wars. I like star Wars. And the game of Thrones books, the song of ice and fire books. I mean, I had heard about them kind of, kind of, but they weren't in the forefront. It wasn't close, closer to the shows. Like, Oh, that series. And I, and some, uh, people that I had working for me. Uh, I'd hear them talking about in the office. By the way, full spoilers. I knew some of the big events of Song of Ice and Fire because I heard uh, these these couple employees talking. I just said, no context, no frame of reference. I, I just didn't know. I looked back on that and laughed. I knew a lot of the stuff. I just didn't connect the dots. And then luckily it didn't come to the forefront. But I'd heard about the Red Wedding. I knew something. I didn't know what it was, but I heard about it. I heard about it. So we'll get to that in season three. I actually watched that last night at the time of this recording. Grace and I are doing our own rewatch, and we're way ahead of, of what we're doing here on Casterly Talk. So we watched The Red Wedding last night. Probably the wrong week to watch real dark, dense political machinations and war. It was, maybe we chose wrong, but it was, it was a great episode, of course, but the great, great to relive, relive that. And I can't wait to get to that point. But the Red Wedding doesn't mean anything to me if I don't absolutely fall in love with Game of Thrones. And that's what I'm trying to say here up top. It's been a long week, long week for all of us here as I, as I record. I'm even going over to YouTube TV to watch to just make sure there's no, at the time, I'm recording this Thursday night, by the way, for, for context here, for, uh, for reference of, of when I'm recording this versus uh, what's going on in, in the world and the election and everything. So I'm watching, I'm watching Wolf Blitzer talk right now. Wolf Blitzer, Game of Thrones name. Game of Thrones name, as, as, as we'll say. Even John King, you know, take the throne. Uh, anyways, we're getting off track. Hey, but that's what I do. It's been a, it's been a fun rewatch. Let's start diving in here um, to Fire and Blood, episode 10. June 19th, 2011 was the first time it aired. Director was Alan Taylor coming back from episode nine. First two episodes on the uh, 
She's on the series for him. Uh, Benny Alpha Weiss for the writers. Cinematographer Elik Sakharov is uh, the uh, cinematographer. Uh, it goes on. To, I didn't realize direct, uh, direct an episode of season three. Uh, editing Francis Parker, and that's something that I pay more attention to because I'm looking at the I'm looking at these uh, these stats, these credit uh, these credits, and everything for these rewatches. So there you go. Uh, the overall overall reaction to this here. So we're talking about season one, and we'll close. We're looking back at a little bit of season one, but. Uh, Here's the thing uh, about this particular episode. It was, and I'm, I'm trying to put myself back in time. I talked a lot about last week about remembering exactly where I was when Ned Stark died and exactly what happened that night and who called me on the phone and the conversations I had. I compared it to some other big historical events that I've lived and many others have lived. I, didn't, I, don't, I don't necessarily mean to go that big with it, but it is that uh, that big in a lot of ways. I, I do remember where I was for a lot of super, super big, uh, historic, real-world events and tragedies. This is a TV show. This is a character. It's not a tragedy, but I remember every moment. That's how powerful this season was, powerful the moment. So to go from that, sitting kind of shocked, the breath actually out of my lungs, Ned's dead, to the next week, this to me is one of the more just one of the most anticipated episodes of Game of Thrones. It really is. There's, I think the long night is is up there and maybe surpasses it because you're getting ready in that episode that gets you ready for the long night. There's there's a lot of that and the speculation about who's going to go and, 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 you know, don't get me started on how, how sometimes speculation can really hurt you but and hurt your enjoyment of the show that's presented to you and the story that's presented to you, but it is what it is. Battle of the Bastards, I, th- I put that up there as well. But this episode, not for an event, it was for how, we, how are we as a fandom, how are we as, as fans of this show going to recover? How do we go on from here? And I remember the conversation I had after that episode. My pal Christian Harloff called me on the phone because 2011, that's what you did. You talked on the phone. And, and I said it last week, but I'll say it again here. He just, he just, he was kind of upset. He said, this is his, this has got to be Jon Snow's story now. I mean, he and I at the time hadn't read the books. I was like, yeah, that, seemed, that seems right. But he's like, no, this has to be, or I don't know if I can keep watching. I'm just too, I'm, I'm just shattered. I'm heartbroken. And, and, and that was going into this episode. That was carrying a lot of us in. Um, how do we go forward? And then interestingly enough, and, and kind of looking at what this episode presents, themes and lessons, and it's funny too, because Benioff, Benioff and Weiss, mostly Benioff, you'll hear him say, and you'll hear, you'll read in interviews where he's like, we don't like to discuss themes. And in the, in the book, A Fire Cannot Kill Dragon by James Hibbard, which I keep referencing, and I did finish, and shout out again to uh, listener Ranger Donald, who gifted me that. Great book, great fun read, deals pretty straightforward. And it's, it's pretty straightforward about a lot of the big controversies around Game of Thrones. So I'd say there's one or two that it didn't address in the book, but... But most of it, it gets to a lot of it. But um, they do talk about it all the time. The writers' room, even Cogman, we don't deal in themes. We don't deal in themes, and that's fine. But I, I'm here to tell you, as you dig into these episodes, the themes are there. The very rocks cry out. If you don't want to, if you don't want to talk about themes, fair enough. You wrote the shows, and you don't want to talk about themes, fair enough. You just want to talk about character decisions and actions, fair enough. But I got news for you. There's themes and themes that run all the way through it. And this one, I got to tell you something. There's two big themes. One, an interesting, I said Benioff and Weiss, but mostly Benioff. 
D.B. Weiss, if you listen to those HBO behind-the-scenes extra things at the end of episodes, stay tuned for a little bit more. I always love those things. Weiss talks about more more about themes than, than anyone else. Um, Benioff will go in another direction, which is probably why they're a good team. There's two sets of, of themes that I think are present in this episode. The one I'm going to spend a lot of time on, one's kind of... Um, and it's almost more of a it's a it's more of a spiritual discussion, a bigger, just a wider discussion. And that is, uh, there's first of all, uh, there's trauma and recovery. Uh, there's uh, there's a lot about recovery. And we again, we as fans, it's almost like they knew we were going to be recovering too. We just all experienced this trauma with Ned Stark. Uh, you couldn't believe it. The writing was on the wall, but you don't believe it at the time. And and, and we talk about the history of television. Even movies about when the characters on the poster, that's plot armor. Ned Stark was going to be okay. And it wasn't the case. And it shocked a lot of us. It shocked a lot of us. Book readers sitting over in the corner, a little smug look on their face at that time. God bless you for getting there early, but we were all shocked. It was trauma. And how do we recover? There's a lot of trauma suffered by the Game of Thrones characters. A lot of, a lot of trauma. I, in fact, you know, this is, um, we're talking about Cersei Lannister here. Uh, I'm going to get up a, a little message that was sent to me by a listener, uh, Robbie Smith, who is uh, just a spack, a spack, a spack. He's a spectacular human being, and that's true. Robbie communicating with me on Discord said this, uh, this idea to me uh, that um, that Cersei, Cersei Lannister is perhaps the most underrated. Character uh, and misunderstood, not underrated, misunderstood character, and that um, says that uh, not condoning acts of violence, but anyone who's made to be just ornamental and told to keep her place as woman is entitled to rage. I say, says Robbie, she's a product of her upbringing and environment. The only thing that sets her apart from Danny is she's uh, uh, you learn to use her voice, good or ill. So uh, I uh, I think that's great there. So Robbie Smith writing me that in there. And uh, I bring that up because of trauma. And every time I, I see Cersei Lannister in Game of Thrones, I think of the trauma she's gone through, the empathy I have for her, and the, and the understanding I have for a lot of her actions because that's how she decided to move forward. That's how she could move forward. Is it the best? No, I wouldn't argue it's the best, but that's the thing. We, we don't know. When you go forward, sometimes you just don't know if that's the right step. But I think sometimes it's important that instead of just going forward, that you stop and you deal and you face reality and you move forward from there and you form a, a recovery plan from there. And to me, that was this episode. That's what was going on in episode 10, Fire and Blood. Facing reality and moving forward. To wit here. Did I say to wit like I'm some sort of poet? I guess I did. I'm not very smart. I have a lot of bad poems. I'm almost like a Vogon when it comes to poetry. I'm going to run down the list here. I'm going to run down an exciting list. Uh, Catelyn Stark focus, focusing on what is. She starts this, uh, you know, the great scene. We're going to run through our favorite scenes as always, but, you know, the word's gotten out that Ned is dead. The word has gotten out. And she walks through the camp. Everyone's quiet. She's keeping up a brave face. Gets in the forest. Just a gut-wrenching cry. And then she she hears she hears uh, Rob crying. 
and hacking a tree with his sword. And one of my favorite lines, I was going to mention it in the favorite lines thing, but I, I think it goes into kind of that uh, recovery uh, and, and, and how your brain can only focus on so much. I love that when, when, when Rob is snot crying, as he should, his father's head was just taken off, and, and he was supposed to march down and save him. And now he wants, you know, this revenge, and now he's, uh, he's upset. First of all, the first thing that Catelyn says to him is, Rob, you've ruined your sword. And it's almost funny if it wasn't tragic, but just the fact that in that moment, that's all she can process. It's all she could process. And also kind of her saying, you can't, you can't ruin your sword because we need that sword. We need you with the sword. We need you, Rob. He's not even the king yet. I, I kind of love that moment when we were talking about trauma and, and recovery. And then she... She faces um, She fake, faces the truth. I, I like to say, focus on what is. Capital is. Capital, uppercase, is. When you focus on what is, as painful as it is, and you can acknowledge it, the path forward maybe emerges for me. And, and Catelyn Stark in this moment, she's dealing with the pain of her, of her husband dying, her son, who, who was who intended, who marched on the South to go save him is absolutely losing him. But she focuses on, 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 focuses him on the idea of what is, is your father is gone, but they still have Arya and Sansa. Obviously doesn't know what's going on with Arya, but for that moment, that is what is. And we have got to move towards that. That is the new goal. And season one, I've, I've apologized to Catelyn Stark. I have looked back and kind of reworded the way I kind of critique and criticize some of her actions. I think Catelyn Stark does make some mistakes in season one. I really do. But the kidnapping uh, uh, of Tyrion or taking him uh, prisoner, if you will, uh, it's a mistake. But going back, especially this season, everything that Catelyn does is for the family. It is for the betterment of that house and the protection of her children. And hey, in a, in a weird way, you got to think even Tywin understands that and respects that. And, and this moment is pretty powerful. Of She sees what is. Ned is dead. Ned is dead. It's the girls that are next. And we got to get the girls back. She faces that. Sansa. Poor Sansa. Who's got to feel so guilty. And got to feel just so trapped. She faces kind of what is. Literally faces with that great scene, it's hard to watch, but it's a great scene with Joffrey uh, after he um, takes the, the tongue out of, uh, was it Mary in there, um, the singer, and takes Sansa out to look at the heads, right? To look at her father's head and Septim Mordain's head. Sansa, going back to episode one, is crocheting. She's needlepointing. Needle she wants to be a queen. She wants to have princes and pr- princesses. She wants to go to court. Naive, but you can't blame her. That's the life she thought she wanted. And he, look where we are now at the end of this season. Father is dead. She watched him uh, get beheaded. Uh, feels probably guilty for her part in that, even though nothing she could do about it. It was Joffrey acting off, off the map, off the plan. And now here is this madman. And she is so far from home, and she's so far from anyone who loves her and anyone who cares about her and anyone who's willing to protect her. She's so far. And she's sitting there 
She doesn't want to look, and it's horrible. She realizes what Joffrey's going to do. He's going to make her stare at her father's uh, severed head. When she looks up, to me, that is Sansa Stark facing what is, uppercase, what is, and starting to move forward. Now, I'll say this. Sansa has a long way to go for me. She has a long way to go. She makes a lot more mistakes, and she gets some bad spots, and some horrible things happen to her. And her growth continues to happen. End of season four. That's why a lot of people were upset at season five, right? She seemed to make such great growth in season four. After after ending season one in this spot, boom, moves forward. New chapter. I think end of season four is where she really starts to kind of uh, change herself again. Season five, bad things, horrible things, tragic things she goes through. I think by the end of season six, with the killing of, of Ramsey, that's kind of the next sense of uh, these little chapters. So she has a long way to go. But the rebirth of Sansa Stark comes out of this moment where she faces the what is, the reality of her situation. I am a long way from home. I am alone. My father's dead. And I'm not, I'm going to have to face this. I'm going to have to get through this. That's one of my powerful moments. Uh, more with Catelyn Stark. Asking Jamie the truth about Bran. After guessing, after it driving so much of the season, her going to Jamie and those great scenes and, 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 and asking him, just point blank asking him what happened. She needs to face what is. She needs to get that information from Jamie. She needs to get the truth. She almost gets it. Jamie doesn't give her the exact reason he pushed him, pushed, pushed him out, but he admits, yeah, I pushed Bran. I wanted him dead. Why? Change the subject. Doesn't want to get into it. But I think Catelyn Stark has to face what is in that moment as, uh, as well. Probably because of, of what it started, of what's going on. How, in a way, what happened to Bran, him being pushed out of that tower, has, I'd say directly, indirectly sure, but directly, in my mind, led to Ned being killed. This is the chain of events. Ned going south with the king? Yeah, you could argue that had a lot to do with it. It put him in the south. But if Bran doesn't get pushed out of the window, if Bran doesn't go through that, and she doesn't go uh, run down and fall for the, the letter from Liza Aaron and run down to King's Landing and tell Ned what's going on and tell him to trust, trust Baelish, and then on the way back, takes Tyrion hostage. I mean, you, do, you, see, you see where I'm going. None of it happens. None of it happens. But it all started because Bran was pushed out of a window and she didn't know. Someone tried to kill Bran. She didn't know why. She didn't know who. And I think at the end of it, following the death of Ned, to confront Jamie and say, why? Did you do it? And why did you do it? I think that's her facing kind of what is. This is where I am now. I cannot change any of this. This is the hard truth truth and this is where i am i think it's a i think it's a michelle farley's just amazing and and any any of those scenes and, and we go to season two we have a lot of scenes with uh catelyn stark and jamie in his uh jail cell um i love those scenes it's so good they're so good together so there's that so there you go another character facing what is and moving forward we also have uh the king of the north rob stark this is a little bit later in the episode this is another what is, but it's a general what is. It is, to me, the North, led by great John Umber in this moment, who's 
calling on the history of the North. Torrin Stark, the king who knelt. We we bowed we bowed to the dragons. Uh, 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 great John Umber saying, paraphrasing of course, but we bowed to the dragons, and there ain't no dragons that that they know of that we're gonna bow to anymore. And it was the Targaryens and their dragons. No one else has dragons. The Targaryens aren't around, at least in this world. We don't got to bow no more. This is what is right here, right now. And we've got to move forward. Ned is dead. We do not honor anyone on that throne. Rob doesn't want that throne. We don't belong in the South. We don't care about the South. We want to be in the North. That is what is. This is our king. This is the direction we move forward. Now, as I can tell you, I'm in season three. It doesn't necessarily go perfectly, but they move forward. Trauma and recovery. Trauma and recovery. Great John Umber. Uh, I, I do love as a character. If only it stuck around and little John Umber didn't take over. Uh, yeah, the great John is... Uh, it's a great moment. It's just a great moment for me. And great use of the history and lore of Game of Thrones... Uh, of Song of Ice and Fire. It was the dragons who we uh, knelt before. We, we don't, we don't got to do that before, anymore. That is what is. Let's face that truth. And let's move forward. We have uh, a couple ones. Uh, Arya Stark at the end of the episode. Um, it's a lesser one, but to me, there's a, a she has to face what is. Um, and that what is, is she is now Ari, a boy marching north, and this is her life. This is the path she's on, and she wants to get home. That's part of the recovery. We know where that goes. It takes a while, but she gets there. She doesn't try to run. She doesn't try to hide. She feels uh, maybe connected or safe somewhat to Yorin. Her and Gendry have the, uh, the connective uh, moment uh, at the uh, end of the episode there as they start to march um, or towards the end of her journey. To me, that's Arya facing a little bit what is. Then we got uh, we got their two big main characters left, which also uh, leads into the other theme here. But we got some what is moments, some reality facing moments. Danny, Daenerys Targaryen has to face the truth of what happened. We talked a, a, a lot last week about characters and the deals they make, and that was very present in episode eight. A lot of characters uh, made deals. Episode nine, excuse me, a lot of characters make deals, and uh, look where it gets them. Danny made her deal, and it cost her. And she is here now, and what she was and what she was on the path to be will never be here again. And I think she also, in keeping with a lot of Daenerys Targaryen in season one, going back to her first big uh, what is and, and move forward thing for me is how she takes control uh, as best she can and does take control of the sexual relationship with Cal Drogo and recovers from uh, rape on her marriage night, quite frankly, and recovers and, and says, I, I'm going to take control of that. Uh, I'm going to take control of myself as, as best I can in these situations. And all through season one, Danny does that. She's often in bad spots, often put there uh, out of her control or in complicated areas that she doesn't have full power. And Danny to me, in season one, just keeps going, I'm going to make sure I'm never in this position again. And that continues. Her journey is uh, long and gets complicated, but 
it's, it was complicated from the beginning, poor Danny. But so I think when she kind of confronts Mary, she has to face she's given a what is about Cal Drogo. Uh, whether or not Danny fully, you know, it's got to be tough. And it's great. It's I, the, the Mary Mazdor scene where she's kind of telling Danny the what is about Cal Drogo. Oh, great. What did you save me for? I'd already been raped three times. They burned my temple. They killed people that I knew and loved and healed. What right did the Dothraki have to do that to us? So, yeah, I killed him. You made this deal. Death for life. Oopsie. Here's what you got. It's one of those. It's a powerful season one moment. It's a it's an underrated season one power, powerful season one moment. Mira's just telling the truth. We all been we all been rooting for Cal Drogo. And you should. He's I like Cal Drogo. I like Jason Momoa. Who doesn't? Come on. Mary's not wrong. Mary's not wrong. Danny has to face that. What she does with that knowledge? I don't know. I think it inspires her. I think Danny's inspired a little bit. Not inspired is not the word, but I think she learns a little bit of a lesson. Because I think she knows. I think she faces the what is of, of what Mary's saying in this moment there. But again... She understands that Mary's saying some truth. Mary Mazdur is saying some truth about Khal Drogo. She understands she made a deal that was bad, but she knows where she is right now, and she's never going to get herself in this position again. And she has a, an inkling of who she is. She has an idea of who she can be. And in this moment, she faces that what is and moves forward. Same side, Jon Snow Here's what he think is, 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 if that makes sense. What is, is, is. Jon Snow hears the truth. The truth is, the facts are, his father, as, as he knows him, is dead. His brother is marching south. War is happening. And it's war for vengeance and revenge. And he's already thought about leaving. He's already been faced, and he didn't. Aemon Targaryen, the great moment. Hey, I am not Maester Aemon. I, I am now, but I used to be Aemon Targaryen. You'll have to choose one day, just like I did. Jon sticks around, right? Well, now look what happens. He, 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 he's, he's here at the wall when his father's head's chopped off and his brother is still marching. And that's kind of a what is. But what I think Jon Snow learns in this episode is that is uh, that is a what is for Rob, for Catelyn, for the North, but it's not his what is. It's not his reality. The great conversation with George is saying, honor made you leave, giving some credit to John. Honor made you leave. It's honorable to believe that your fight might have been with uh, your brother, uh, you know, going down to avenge your father. But honor brought you back, the honor of your brothers in the Night's Watch, not your honor. And when Jor Mormont really puts it on the line, you know what's out there. You've already seen it. You've already seen a blue-eyed creature try to kill me. You killed him. You burned him. You've seen that. Cotter Pike down East Watch, three of them, they just had the sense to burn them. You know what's going on. You're hearing the reports. Your, your, your uncle hasn't come back. Is your brother's war bigger than our war? We're here to protect the realm, and the realm's in trouble. 
That is, Jon Snow, your reality. You want to go down, and I get it. You want to go save the day, and I get it. That is not the reality of what you're, the situation you're in. It's not the vows you took. And that is, you're going to have to face Jon Snow. Important to you, certainly, and many others. But it's not important to us. It's not why you're, why you're here. And I love Jor's line, Jor Mormont's line, good, we've had enough of that sort of thing. You're done. And it's one of my favorite little Game of Thrones moments. Oh, God. You know, it's unfortunate, you know, when you learn when season two rolls around and ones that, what ends up happening to those poor uh, uh, Night's Watchmen there marching north uh, in, in season two into season three. When season one ended, I don't know why I thought this, too. Again, uh, that moment where he's talking, when Jorah Mormont's talking to John. And good, because we're going to march in force. The Night's Watch is marching in force, 300 men. We're heading north, and we're going to figure out what the hell's going on. We're enjoying court half and The details not explained in this episode. But that moment, and they cut as the VO's going, and, and it's over the image of John and Ghost. Good, because I need your wolf with us. Oh, that's a fist pump a moment. I love that moment. It went a little differently than I had planned. I don't know why I would think differently. I don't know why I thought that in, uh, you know, season one of episode two, uh, Jor Mormont's Night's Watch is going to be kicking ass north of the wall. You know, I guess I was, I guess the lesson to Ned Stark, I hadn't faced that what is about Game of Thrones. The reality of it is uh, things never go the way you want them to go. But I was so excited in this scene. I love this scene. John has to face his truth. This leads to the the other theme, the other thing that's kind of uh, present in this episode, but specifically, I mean, it's present in some of the other characters, too. Specifically, uh, Rob uh, being told, look, your father's dead, but Arya and, and, and Sansa are there. And then the King of the North scene. But the idea is, and this is, D.B. Weiss does say this in the extras, it gives a, for Jan, a John and Danny the idea of get, you have to give yourself over to something larger than yourself. And this the Song of Ice and Fire, these are our two main characters. And they have to give themselves over. For Danny, it is something that she really wants to do. She feels it. She has faith. She looks around. She has no Kalisar left. Everyone's ditched her except for a handful of people. Jorah's there, but Jorah's kind of like, and I, I, you know I love my Jorah Mormont. But he's like, we could have been gone 10 miles towards the shy. We could have been gone. He says that in episode nine. Here, episode 10. Come on. We got to go. Just grab the dragon eggs. Let's get a ship and let's go. Let's live out the rest of our days somewhere else. Jorah didn't have faith until this moment, but he's about to get some, right? He's really about to get some. But Danny had the faith. Danny had the faith in herself. Faith in herself and Danny is willingly ready to give herself over to something that is larger than herself, a bigger cause, freeing slaves. Uh, taking back the Iron Throne at this moment, not necessarily for herself, but for the good of the realm. I think she feels that. Again, she's been told, they say they whisper your name or your family name and your brother's name. They, they hold secret uh, you know, prayers for your safety. Targaryen flags are just inside the houses waiting to be brought out. So that's something that's bigger than her. I don't think in this moment, at season, end of season one, that Danny's like, yeah, I want the Iron Throne for me. And that is going back to what Miri has told her. Miri Mazdor has told her some truths, some hard truths. 
Danny goes through some things. Danny ends up in a tough spot. Different conversation for what happens to her. But in this moment, I think she's like, yeah, you know what? I can use this power for good. And I know I'm powerful. And I've got to face that. And I've got to give give myself and take this leap of faith. She might, there's probably, I don't know. Take I was going to say maybe there's 2% of Danny that thinks, yeah, I might, I might burn up in this pyre. But looking back, nah, watching it, I don't think Danny thinks for one second or 1% that she's not walking out of that. Does she know the dragons are going to be hatched? I don't know that. I don't know that. But I think she knew what she was doing. And she was giving herself over to something larger than herself. And that's what Jon Snow's doing, too. Rob Stark's doing it. King of the North at something a little uh, bigger than him and, and not just a, no longer about uh, revenge. It's no longer about just about his immediate family. Now it's his, his larger family, the North. So John gives himself over to that as well, but uh, uh, excuse me, Rob. But John, John learns it. It's the Jor Mormont scene. You've got to, you got to, got to, got to be better. You got to look more uh, than uh, what your own old problems are, and your problems are big. Rob Stark's that your family, Ned's dead. Problems are big. There's something more. There's something bigger. And you got to give yourself over to it. So that's that. That comes up there too, and to end season one with those. Those two characters committing to something bigger than themselves and to see where it takes them and to see how it's intertwined and to see where it ends up. It's pretty cool when you look back at the end of the season and say, yeah, it happened right here. Important foreshadowing, uh, things with more meaning now. I mentioned the stuff by uh, uh, Great John Umber. Uh, the Great John says, it was the dragons we bowed to and the dragons are dead. So yes, to them at this point, True. Uh, we, at this point in the episode, are thinking, yeah, it's true. The episode ends, dragons aren't dead anymore. So this line with Great John, uh, the Great John has more meaning within the episode, has more meaning for the rest of the show. But when you go back and you're watching this episode, even just the second time, back in like 2011 on your old DVR or something like that, when you're watching this the second time, it means more in the episode. Uh, it, you know, it's like, oops, they were kind of telling us. Going to that scene, I love, it's heartbreaking, but I love Theon Greyjoy pledging, am I your brother? Am I your brother? And and Rob Stark saying, I, you are. And I just, it, I have a lot more sympathy and empathy, all the pithies, for Theon Greyjoy, when you go back and you see see what he's been through, especially when he when he goes back to uh, to Pike and and we meet his dad, it's in Game of Thrones. A lot of times when you go meet the fathers, you suddenly understand. When we meet Tywin, and I love Tywin Lannister, I really do. But when we meet Ty, Tywin and Lannister at episode seven, we suddenly realize a little bit of what's going on with Tyrion, Jamie, and, and I think especially Cersei. When we eventually meet Randall Tarley, we understand why Sam T- Samuel Tarley had some issues. When uh, when we meet Balon Greyjoy, uh, we understand. We understand a little bit about Theon. But anyways, I, I, was, we know we know what's going to happen almost right away in season two. Theon, who kind of just wanted to be a Stark, wanted to be loved by a Stark, uh, wanted to be considered there because he not because. A changing of the team or a changing of the last name, but he just that that's that's where he was raised, and he felt the connection, and and he deals with it. You know the stuff uh, with uh, uh, with Osha. He kind of he's rude to her. Maester Lewin has to step in, and and everyone's kind of always reminding Theon that you aren't a Stark. 
in this moment for Theon to pledge and by and pledge with the words, am I your brother? I think it's powerful. It means a little more bittersweet, but it means, uh, means more. Um, uh, Caitlin, going back to the Caitlin Stark and Jamie uh, scene where she goes and, and uh, kind of talks to him, confronts him in that big moment. Uh, it means more to me now because they are going to have more of these conversations. And they form a, not a bond, a weird trust, if that makes sense. What Catelyn Stark uh, does by, you know, sending Brienne away with Jamie causes a ton of problems. It's part of the start of the downfall of the, the North's um, attempts to defeat the South or defeat the Lannisters. We can debate that when that comes. But watching this scene now and watching um, where they used it and how uh, they took it from the books or whatever and then dumped some into season one and some into season two. I was reading some of the behind the scenes stuff on that. It just establishes, like I said, a little bit of a weird trust between these two adversaries. Especially the stuff later on with Jamie talking about uh, him having a little bit more honor than poor dad Ned. Uh, Jamie's not nice in these scenes, right? We're still not. Uh, Jamie's breaking down, but he's not broken yet. He'll get there. Uh, but you know what I mean? That's what I think means a little bit more about these scenes. Uh, Catelyn and Jamie have formed a little bit of a trust, they formed some communication. A connection, if you will. And that's going to cause problems and lead to more things later on. Uh, because Catelyn, I think, feels she can. She can have these conversations with him. She can free him and and, and, and her heart believe that with Brian's help, this deal will be honored. If that makes sense. <sighs> Talking about... Um, Shay, oh, there's a. I wrote down a note about Tywin and Shay. Shay says uh, when they're talking about uh, going down to court uh, with uh, Tyrion and and how his Tywin doesn't want it, and 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 Shay says he knew my name. I'm not saying it's complete foreshadowing. Like Shay's kind of like, oh, Ty, ooh, Tywin Lannister. Might, are you saying he knew my name? He liked my tweet. Is that what you're saying? I'm not saying it, it's totally that, but there's a little bit of that of where we know where we. Where we go, and also just the fact that at this point she's like Tywin Lannister knows who I am, and then eventually she'll be in his bed and eventually be killed in his bed by this man Tyrion. It is it, tragic. It's totally tragic. And, and look back here, and this is just one of those little moments that has a little bit, has a little bit more for me. I love uh, I love this quote, but I also uh, think it has a little bit of um, meaning for Danny going forward when Miriam Asdor tells her, uh, you know, you find out what life is worth. Uh, what is what 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 life is worth uh, when all the rest is gone is what she'll find out. I, I sorry, I wrote that down a little weird. But you know when Mary tells and she says that to Danny, and I can't help but think about going into season seven, but going especially you know starting in season seven. By the time she lands, when she lands on Dragonstone, from that moment to the end, about Danny's life and what it really was was worth in a way when everyone around her that made that life. Uh, is gone or affected, and, and I think you can look for a lot of people look at um, at it as a, you know an advisory capacity, right? Even going back to when Barristan's uh, killed off in the show, she's losing advisors, she's losing mentors and confidants, and 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 people that can can talk her out of her worst instincts or worst uh, behaviors. Keep her in line, right? Keep keep Danny in line. That's what that's what we focus on, and I focus on that too. 
But the truth of it is, and, and the Masande one, I understand the controversy of that death outside the show. Um, and I understand those things and those conversations. I'm there for them. But but in the show, I think it was one of the more powerful deaths. I really still think Masande's death was one of the more powerful deaths because that was a that wasn't a confidant, a mentor, a coach. That was a friend. That was one of the people she had a connection with. That's one of the people she rescued, but then uh, considered an equal and made it equal uh, outside of just job duties and valued as an equal and valued as a friend and a sister and and and. That that loss, uh, Barristan's loss, uh, Dario going away, her breaking up with Dario, which, you know, I'm fine with as a Jorah fan, but would he have kept her at bay? I don't know, but he's the one that tells her, you're a conqueror. You're a conqueror. And maybe by knowing who she was, maybe he could have helped turn her from that. I don't, I don't know, but Dario's gone too. Uh, all these people are along the way, and it's not just positions in their cabinet that are gone. They're people that Danny loved. And what, what, what was her life worth? She got to where she wanted to go. She won it. She won the throne. Her life's mission. And I'm, I'm generalizing a lot of Danny's journey. I, I totally understand. This is going to be a conversation we're going to keep having for a long time as we review the entire season. But I, go, I was watching this and just Mary saying, Mary Mazder saying, you know, what life is, you'll find out what life is worth when the rest is gone. What, what, what is it worth? There's not nothing. Cal Drogo took everything from me. Burn me. Kill me. I don't care. You won't hear my screams. Daenerys says, oh, I will hear your screams. Preview of things to come, right? I don't know. I'm not saying it's science. I'm not saying this is exactly as intended. I couldn't help escape this, this line of thinking. Of, of Miri tells her this. You know, when the when all the rest is gone, what what is your life worth? What is it? What what what's the point? Danny got what she wanted. She got what she felt her destiny was leading her towards, but the choices along the way took everything from her. And I'm not saying she had it coming. I'm not saying any of that. It is it is tragic to me. I could I still consider the fall of Danny to be tragic, and that was the point to be tragic. And I go back to this one. Because we want, we, you know, we still kind of want Mary to die, right? You're still kind of rooting for her to be burned on that pyre. You still don't like what she did to Kyle. Oh, you might be tr- saying some truth about Kyle Drogo and the Dothraki and what they did, but you got to go, right? We're cheering it on. We're not necessarily cheering Danny on. Well, we are, but who, who we can. But then she drops this truth bomb, and I don't know. To me, it's something that might, I don't, I don't think it actively haunts Danny, but I think it does. I think it's a factor. Uh, and then, and, and, um, a couple other things here, just running through some, 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 um, some moments. Pycelle st- talking about Eris, uh, Targaryen, uh, that, that scene with Roz, uh, just saying Eris, he, Eris was a good man. Eris was a good guy. He was a good guy. He just became consumed by dreams of fire and blood. Again, not saying that's directly related to Danny, but that's her dad. That's her dad. And Danny says things about uh, her dreams of fire and blood a lot. She has a lot of those dreams. And I think in a way she did become come, uh, consumed by them as well. So Pycelle saying that has some meaning to me. I like Vera saying I must be one of the few men in the city that doesn't want to be king. To me, 
looking back, I don't say I don't think it was super intended for this, but it's fun to hear this line and know that Bran ends up on the throne and he says he didn't want to be king. Um, I love the um, I got some um, I got some of the final stuff with Danny in terms of favor uh, uh, foreshadowing. Uh, Danny saying, "I see, I see the faces of slaves. I free you." Uh, that's the theme for her clearly going forward. Says that uh, to to her uh, Calisar at the end. Uh, Danny to Miri Mazdur again. Uh, when when D- uh, Miri Mazdur says, uh, "You're not gonna hear my screams." I will. <laughs> Danny shoots back, "I will," uh, and then says, "But it's not your screams I want. Only your life." Again, we're cheering Danny on. We're cheering Danny on a lot, and I think a lot again. Addie had this call on the show a couple weeks ago about man. I almost feel bad rooting for Danny, particularly with Viserys. I don't think I don't think we should feel bad. I just think at some point we wanted someone to tell her to stop. I don't know. It starts getting worse and worse. You know, uh, the punishing the the freed slave and and, and killing him. Uh, Varys, uh, Dickon, and Randall Tarly just it gets builds and builds and builds. But yes. I think by the end we were, you know, Randall Tarley wasn't a good dude. It wasn't a good father. Definitely not a good father. Therefore, I'll say not a good dude. But like Dickon, like, did you have to kill Dickon? I think that's when we started to slowly, even maybe that's even late in the game. But you know what I mean? I don't know. It's fun. It's just, it's fun to watch this moment with Danny. Like, oh, I'll hear your screams, but it's not your screams I want. Don't give a damn about that. It's your life. Like, oh, yeah, go, Danny. Oh, wait, I don't know. Just it's fun to look back. But here's the point. Here's kind of the um, important. It, it's a little bit of foreshadowing. It's a little bit of a lesson. We talk about the lessons. Danny, Danny gave absolute trust to Miri, right? Completely says, let me save you. Now let me try to say, you, you have you saved my husband. I will trust you. I will show you kindness. Because I feel you deserve it. And because, yes, horrible things. I don't think Danny, there's no point where Danny's like disagrees with Mary Mazdor about what was done to her or her people. She has to face it. It's tough to face. Uh, it doesn't excuse anything that Mary does for Danny, you know, but she, she gets it. But what, what's the lesson here? What does Danny learn? We talked about these lessons she learns along the way. We got the, the big lesson she learns from uh, Zaro, uh, Zohan Doxus in season two. Uh, this one, she she gave someone her trust and kindness, someone she didn't really know, and it was used against her in a big way. Danny is going to kind of rally and close in as she gets farther and farther on her journey. And Jorah, my man Jorah, he he made he made a mistake. I think I think I don't think I don't think he deserved what Danny did. Toss you know punishment, going to detention. Suspended without pay for a week or so. I don't know. There's some things that should have been done to Jorah that I would have been fine with. But kicking him out, again, I'm never here to blame Danny. But I think it goes back to this kind of stuff. Jorah did make some mistakes. He did do some behind-the-back stuff in the early going. I think he stops. He's done. He's clear. But mid- midway through season one, Jorah Mormon is... Um, behind the De- Daenerys Targaryen and her cause. And then at the end of this season, he has full faith in what he's seeing as something special, right? Uh, Jorah's on board. But when things start happening to Danny later on that are about trust 
and her kindness being used against her, her trust being used against her, I think she goes back to these moments with Mary and is like, that's never going to happen again because a lot of what season one with Danny is about is I will never be in these positions again where I do not hold some of the cards, but hopefully all the cards. I don't think Danny ever wants to be in that position again. So when someone like Jorah puts her in that position, she's not going to stick around to let you hurt her again. She's not. She welcomes Jorah back. It's a journey. It's a journey. But same with Varys when she confronts Varys. And when Varys goes against her. Again, it's more down the line with Danny's journey and kind of the walls crumbling around her. But I think you can go back to this moment and I think you can go back to this season. I will never be in that position again. I never want to have to be in a position where I have to rely on someone I don't know to save someone I love where I have to make a deal with someone, this person, and I have to put them at, put myself at their mercy. Going to season two, we'll talk about, I never want to have to be begging for ships and uh, be, uh, you know, owe so much to a stranger, Zaro, you know, sponsoring them into, into cars. She needs to, she has to, it saves them, but it costs her, her trust used against her in season two. So I think a lot of that goes back to the big lesson she learns in season one. Favorite moments, uh, a lot of them there. I don't want to just run through every scene, but, you know, Bran and Rickon, the dream sequence leading up to the knowledge of Ned's death is really nicely done. We've been getting the three-eyed raven, uh, you know, floating around a lot of visions for Bran all through season one. We don't yet really know what it is. Jojen Reed hasn't come, come on board yet to creep us out. It's you. The Raven is you. Um, we haven't got to that yet, but uh, this and combined with uh, Rickon uh, and Shaggy Dog down there, just kind of Rickon being so convinced. No, I saw Father down here. Nah, and then and then uh, Maester Lewin gives him the gives him the word uh, of what happens with that. I, I love that sequence. A couple small things here that I love in this episode: Fire and Blood, the Hound having to wear. The armor of the King's Guard has always amused me because he doesn't he's not a knight. He doesn't want to be a knight. He was playing with a carved uh, piece of uh, wood that was uh, you know made to be a knight when his face was pushed into the flames. He wants nothing to do it. His brother's a knight. How that's silliness. My brother's not worthy of that. So here he is, not, not necessarily a sir, not a sir the hound, but he's in the armor of the King's Guard. It's all clean and it's pretty. And I just, I love these moments where you see how, you know, he's not in it for much longer, but I just love seeing it just like, it does not look right because it isn't the hound. And I love that. And I respect that about the hound. Yerp. Uh, small meaning, the, the Jamie look of season one is gone forever. Jamie Lannister had that look, man, that Disney prince, the chiseled jaw, uh, you know, the hair, the, the, the princely hair. Oh, he's so smug. You just want to punch him. And here he is, Battle of Whispering Wood. He's caught. He's he, the stubble starting to come in. He's dirty. He's and look, go to season two and go into season three, where he finally he he if he's Jamie Lannister starts the show so pretty. He's so pretty in season one. Too pretty, right? He spends two years covered in dirt, mud, tears, poop, pee, whatever you name it. He's wearing it. And it doesn't change until he goes back uh, to King's Landing. And, and uh, I just watched that moment last night to see kind of where it all begins. 
uh, with this episode where he's 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 lost that look. He's lost that Jamie feeling. Love the line. This is what Jamie Lannister is such a great character. Ah, they're all great characters, aren't they all? They are, they're all great characters. Uh, maybe not Euron. Sorry, Euron. Take a B plus. Uh, anyways, uh, Jamie Lannister saying uh, when he says there are no men like me, only me. Oh, that's a good line. That's a good line there. Uh, I love uh, Tyrion and um, Tywin kind of having uh, one of their uh, Tywin giving him credit moments. It's his, you know, it's the most loving Tywin is with Tyrion, right? And he says, you were right about Eddard Stark. And kind of giving Tyrion that credit in that moment, you know, sends him to court as as acting king of the hand, but don't bring your whore with you. So Tywin is still the prick that he uh, normally is. But uh, I, I kind of like this moment. It's a great moment. And them together, just spectacular. Uh, I do like, I, it, it's, it's so funny because it kind of can border on cheesy, but Pip Gren and Sam saying the words, saying the vows. I like that. I actually really do like that. And when it pops up again and again and again and leads to Gren's final moments holding uh, the tunnel and, and uh, watchers on the wall in season four, you know, and I know I got my Night's Watch hat on. I do like the Night's Watch, man. It's just something weird about me. Uh, the vow, But the vows, could you could this could have been cheesy. This could have been on, on uh, the way fantasy, especially on like Saturday morning syndicated fantasy might have been done in the past. Uh, this could have been a real cheesy scene. Them trying to convince John to come back and they recite the words that they all said beneath the tree. Well, Sam then, the, you know, these are our vows. Aren't those cool? It could have been real cheesy. And it's a, it's a moving moment. Uh, this uh, final scene here, there's other things we talked about. Jor Mormont, I wasn't talking about your honor. I love that line. Uh, Miriam Azdur saying uh, it was wrong of them to burn my temple. Just straight at it. It's, she ain't wrong. Again. Final moment. The reveal of Pycelle. Julian Glover. He's with Roz. Poor Roz, but hey, I guess she, uh, she's working it, right? Uh, and she, she, she does good. She's good. Bad ending, but good rise for Roz. Really do like Roz. Um, but the reveal is Pycelle's just bumbling about his... The thing about kings is... And the reveal that he is uh, not old and uh, as, as old and decrepit as he's playing is I, I was blown away the first time I saw that in 2011. And I thought this was going to mean something. And... I got to tell you, this this shows how how I take in content for me personally has changed. I think you can still watch these shows, and Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire is is a lot of the building blocks are theories, predictions of what's going to come, and what does that mean, and and what does that prophecy mean? I preach until the point of annoyance, probably to all of you listening, about asking the why of these moments, and and that's how a lot of these shows and, and movies are put together in these stories. They're not puzzles for you to solve. There's puzzles in them for you to solve. R plus L does equal J. And I had that T-shirt. I still have that T-shirt. And I felt real cool wearing it. It wasn't always about that. Uh, the reveal of Pycelle is so simple and direct. I can't believe I missed it. Just like they are all playing a game. They're all playing the roles. This is what's going on here. This is the world. And the rumbling, bumbling, stumbling Pycelle who drops uh, notes from ravens, who's uh, the, 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 the kings, 
It's all fake. As Baelish says to Sansa, it's his line in this show. A little different in the books, of course, but in the show, uh, look around. We're all liars here. And every one of them, every one of us better than you. That's what this moment was about. Nothing more, nothing less. Uh, so I spent a lot of the seasons waiting for someone to pull the curtain back and reveal Pycelle. Ha ha, he stands. He doesn't limp. He's, he's fine. And it never happened. They cut that scene of Taiwan just kind of knowing at the, the fishing scene. We've mentioned that deleted scene before. And I would, have, I, would have loved, I would have loved to have seen it because I would have felt justified. So looking back, I, I, I just watch these shows so much different, differently now. This was never going to be anything more than just showing that Pycelle, along with everyone here, is a liar because you need to be a liar because that's the Game of Thrones and either you win or you die. And I thought that was a good end to the season, a good reveal, just in case you missed the point. And I, I guess I missed the point. I love that moment. Uh, the ending, wrap it up here. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the ending, and we got some great calls, too, to end uh, this one. Uh, I love the ending. The Danny uh, uh, coming out of the, uh, the ash um, with the dragons. All credit to Amelia Clark, just, uh, you know, barren, barren a lot here. Uh, and she does talk about this in the book. Um, it's, it's a real raw moment. But it's powerful. And this, I, I, so I'll say this, in terms of endings, and we have talked about that on the show, then we've got some calls about the best endings. I really love season two's ending. It f- scares me. But it, I, it's, almost an, it's almost a post-credit scene is the one I react to. To me, the real ending of season two is Danny uh, and Zaro and all that stuff and kind of the lesson she learns there and grabbing the, sh- the, the, the gold and they're going to get a ship. And they're going to get out of Karth, and the new, the next chapter of Danny begins. To me, that's kind of the real ending of episode two. Post credits is the uh, fist of the first man and the third horn, and that's just one. That's just, gosh, I love that moment. But going to this one here, I think that I mean for this season that is nearly perfect. Season one, I said before, we are spoiled. It's nearly perfect. Like we're at ninety nine point nine, and this ending, it's so. When you just go back and watch it, uh, as Grace and I did recently, just uh, you know, doing our own kind of rewatch on the side of this rewatch I'm doing for Casterly Talk, you're inspired. You're overlooking the fact that she burned Mary Mazdor at the stake, and uh, what got it, all the things I've been talking about. You don't care about that. It's a powerful moment. I kind of like that we see a little bit of it through Jorah's eyes, uh, him him kind of bowing, and and then if you. Go back to the great John saying there's dragons are dead. They're not dead. To go the whole season with those dragon eggs and, and just to see where she ends up. I think it's a great ending. It might be climbing on the list of my of the actual ending. I'm cheating a little bit by saying that ending to season two isn't the ending. It's a post-credit scene, but um, this one's there as much. Um, and then season three ends with the Mesa stuff. That's okay. This one's a little bit, this one's better. This one's better. It's a great ending. It's a great ending. What do you think? Uh, stars of the episode. We could list so many people, big and small cast members. I really want to give Sophie Turner credit in this episode and Amelia Clark. Again, just for that end, end moment, bearing it all, um, very vulnerable position to be as an actor. And uh, this is one of the first times that I just, uh, she's already done great. But I, 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 I sometimes... I don't know. I didn't react to Amelia Clark's acting as, as much as I did later on in the seasons. And I think she grew into the role. She was the role, but she grew into it. 
But uh, and of course, the famous recast, she gets it, and it's just meant to be. Um, but this is the this 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 is so effective, and this is such a great uh, just episode for her. Even even the having to put the pillow over Cal Drogo's um, face is and killing him is just it's heart wrenching. And Amelia Clark, really, this is the episode that I think that I just you know like all right, she she is she is definitely a star of this show. I gotta give credit to Sophie Turner though. Sophie Turner, so young, what, 12, 13, when she shoots the pilot, then they redo it, a little older, but she's still so young, and she's playing a character that is designed from George R. R. Martin's words uh, on the page, and that's, uh, you could, I'm sure, find a, an interview or two about him talking about this, but in the book, Sansa's just, des- you're designed, you're, you're trained, I should say, not to like Sansa Stark. She's annoying, she's naive, she's... And it's silly, and, and she and she still kind of falls for Joffrey, and then believes and helps her father get beheaded in a way, though it's not her fault. It's not your fault, Sansa. Sophie Turner does that so well. Learns the act, you know. Already, you know, learns the act, uh, the art, the art and, and craft of acting along the way. Uh, I think gets better and better as the seasons go on. But in season one, I think she nails it. She nails it when you go back and look at it because she is, Joffrey gets all the headlines, rightfully so, for being so hated in season one. But I got to tell you, there's a, there's, if you don't remember, there's a, there was a lot of hate for Sansa Stark. And it's by design and she plays it and she, she, she takes you on that journey to this very moment on the, pl- on the catwalk, on the plank looking up at her father's severed head. It's a powerful moment. And you're rooting for her. You're like, don't do not do it, but do it. Push Joffrey off. End it all. You might go with it, but do it. Do it. Nah. It's, it's such a great moment. Go back and watch that episode if you haven't already. Go back and watch season one. Sansa's hated. She's hated. And Sophie Turner digs in her heels on this character and is like, I'm going to take you on this journey too because you know what? Sansa might hate at this moment her position she's in, and she might not like who she was because who she was got her in this bad spot, if you will. She snaps out of it, and the journey is long, but it starts here, and Sophie Turner does a great job of that. So love that. Love that. All right, we got a, we got a few calls here we're going to get to to wrap up the season. Uh, we got Alden Diaz. He's cheating. He apologizes up top. He's got himself a two-parter. But we love Alden, so let's play it. Hey, Ken, it's Alden here. Can't believe we're already at the end of season one. It's crazy that we've got a season down. Uh, Forgive me, my lord, knapsack. I'm going to abuse the question uh, here, the question time limit, and go for a two-parter. At the end here, we see Daenerys' figurative slash, you know, literal a little bit with the trial by fire element actually being able to resist the flames. Her children are born. We see this rebirth at the end as it consumes Drogo's body and Miri Mazdur. But we also see it later on when she burns the Dothraki calls in season six. Are we to interpret on a metaphorical or thematic level that we're witnessing three distinct stages of Danny in the show? Three forms? Is this something you've observed or tracked? Maybe tying in with what Beric Dondarrion says about coming back and how it chips away a little bit. The princess becomes the unburnt. The unburnt becomes, I, I guess, the dragon queen for better or worse. Uh, I'll continue this observation uh, in part two of the question. So, uh, Ken, it's Alden again, obviously just building off of the first part here. It's for part two of the question. 
Uh, I'm wondering, is this meant to contrast with Jon Snow in the ice and fire of it all, who has one core rebirth, perhaps did not stretch his soul as far as Daenerys, did not push it as far into a corruptible territory, if you will, the live long enough to see yourself become the villain, or live too many times to see yourself become the villain. My interpretation sort of evokes an idea from Martin and Dan and Dave that the story itself is about how souls can't really endure such drastic trauma and transformation in the spirit of I want, I want even Rob goes from save dad to kill them all. That might have been what signed his death warrant. So maybe game of Thrones is about what the spirit can take bend or break has a darkness in a way where John resurrects and has his final adventure, but Danny becomes sort of an Icarus. So maybe she can't be satiated. I'm curious what you think about all of that. Well, you know what, Alden, you're 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 a smart cookie, man. I I love it. Um, I I'm gonna just I'm nodding my head and agreeing on a lot of it. This is the type of thing that some of it might have been very intentional. Some of it is just what emerges from the story. Again, Benioff will tell you all day. We don't like to talk about themes. They're there. And do I think Danny went into the flames essentially uh, two times to make three separate chapters of her life and where it ended? I, I, I can get behind this idea. And I can follow you a little bit here on the uh, what Barrick Dondarian said. Great pull on that. Every time you come back, it's it's different. And, and when John comes back, there's this uh, that great scene. Again, Danny does, never actually uh, dies, just but the one time if anything Danny is rising out of the ashes Danny's being reborn I just talk about Sansa I think Sansa goes through some stages in each a chapter and her rebirth begins there in this catwalk that I keep mentioning but I think I think Danny is reborn a few times but each time she is a little bit further away from what she once was and each time the people around her are not there, not as present, or she's not listening, or she's been burnt, no pun intended, by them. And I do think, and, and, and go, well, John, she's again, she doesn't die. I don't want to lose my own train of thought here, but John says, you know, what was on the other side? Nothing. Barrett kind of has come some similar words when he's talking to, to Melisandre in season three, but when John sees that there's nothing there, and this is all we got, all these gods, you know, you know, who knows if he had stayed dead, does he ends up does does he end up at a table with the seven gods? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think the old gods are the are the, are the real ones. The seven gods, not so much. And the Lord of Light, I think, you know, is, there's something there, something, something that's real about that magic, right? But John doesn't. Uh, he doesn't. He comes back changed in the way of like not, nothing matters. We, I, I'm leaving it all on the table here. And that fuels kind of him going forward. Danny, Danny's it's a little different, but I I, I'm, I follow you all to know on what it means. And 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 I definitely take your point. That's kind of what. That's kind of what I go and I, I I sometimes I love I love discussing John and Danny's story. It's the series. It is the Song of Ice and Fire. And it isn't about that damn throne. It isn't about that damn throne. And I think it is more in line with what you're talking about, Alden, about the bender break. And that humans are not meant to go through this kind of trauma or it's tough to get through it. And this episode, this episode is all about seeing what is and how do you recover from it. And all the recoveries and the paths forward that I've talked about here in this episode, not all of them go good. And along the way, some horrible things still happen before it gets to any semblance of good. 
I still think that's part of the point of the story. I still think that's what was put on screen. And each time Danny goes into the flames and emerges as something different. Here, I love that. The, the princess to the unburnt to the mother of dragons to the dragon queen, if you will. She, she, and I, I love, I love the, I love the season six burn of the calls. That's a, that's a cheer Danny on moment as well. I don't think she could have done it any other way. But what what were we cheering? Like, there's no compromise in that scene, right? There's no sitting down with the cows and saying, all right, fine, you want me to stay here the rest of my days? What if I get weekends to go conquer? There's none of that going to happen. There's nothing. Could she have, I guess the argument is, could she have done something to show her power and get them to bow before her or she had gotten others to bow before her in the past? I, I don't know. But we're cheering Danny on, and when she emerges in that scene, from the flames, naked again, Amelia Clark, uh, bearing it all emotionally more than even physically. And then everyone bows, everyone who remains bows, and she has her army, she has her Dothraki horde to go conquer. I can't wait to get there and go back to what Alden's saying here. But I do think it, it, it's, it's kind of the point of a lot of what's going on here. What can we take and how much can we take? Great stuff, Alden. I, I uh, we'll get you on the show too, man. We'll talk about it. Uh, we got uh, Eric Monroe. It wouldn't be a great episode of Casually Talk without Eric Monroe. Hey, Kenny Casually Talk. So, Fire and Blood, an amazing season finale to an absolutely perfect first season. I uh, absolutely love it. We get the first of what will be three of three of King in the North uh, or Queen in the North scenes with Rob being named the King in the North. I absolutely love this scene. And I agree with what Rob says in the beginning when he says, Renly is not the king. Bran can't be Lord of Winterfell before me. Renly cannot be king before Stannis. And I agree with that 100%. But I love where the scene goes where they say, you know what? Screw these two Baratheon brothers. They don't mean anything to us. You mean something to me. You be our king. And uh, Rob accepts it. I love when Theon says, my sword is yours. It's, it's a great scene. And like I said, the first of three. And I'm getting excited because season two is right around the corner. And you know what that means. Sanus the Manus is upon us. Oh, Eric, I can't wait to talk Stannis Baratheon and have your calls going about that. Nothing creates tension more in my relationship at home than my love of Stannis. Grace cannot comprehend it. Season two, we did our rewatch of season two pretty quick. And every time Stannis came on, anytime Stannis comes on, but anytime Stannis came on, I'd get a look. I'd get a look. So Eric and I love Stannis Baratheon. And I love Stannis Baratheon again because of the lessons that are be learned from the character. And I just, I just like Stephen DeLay. Uh, seems, he seems, uh, seems prickly, right? He is. Uh, and it shows as status and it works. Uh, great stuff, Eric, echoing kind of um, some stuff I was saying about Rob and that scene and, and just the North. And, and knowing where that story ends up to with Sansa kind of uh, being the one to complete that journey. And that journey for the North starts uh, in this episode. It starts a little before. But again, it was, it was Rob calls the banners to go save Ned. And then it, it becomes something else here. And it ends pretty fast. We only get to go to season uh, three with uh, the North on this journey, right? Then it becomes something completely different. But the, the journey goes all the way to season eight with Sansa. So great stuff, Eric. I look forward to your calls on Stannis. Uh, we got Billy checking back in. Hey, Ken, it's Billy. So sorry I'm late, but I finally caught up with the rewatch. 
I'm so excited that you're doing this and I can't wait for many more episodes to discuss. It's crazy going back and finally rewatching the show after the final season. It's my first time rewatching it after seeing season eight and seeing how everything played out. I just wanted to say my biggest takeaway from rewatching the first season, at least, is just how well everything seems to be thought out right from the beginning. You see all these costumes, characters, all this foreshadowing for later seasons, seasons that are so far away. And it just seems like they really had something mapped out. Obviously, things change as you go along. George R. R. Martin talks about that all the time. And I'm sure Dan and Dave changed their minds on some things as well. But I just loved seeing how how set the world was just right from the get-go. Everything seemed to be locked in. They knew what they wanted, and they went for it. Thanks. Great call, Billy. Good to have you back here. And and, and uh, I love all you that call in, and some of you call in regulars, and some of you, uh, it's been a while. Love to hear from you. Uh, get on the uh, Anchor app, follow the link. There's some there's some issues right now with Anchor. You can It's hard to t- go to the app and search Casually Talk if you don't have uh, the, the podcast favorited. But if you just click the link when I tweet it out or it's on the Facebook page, you can like us over there, Casually Talk. Go to Anchor and just get, put, put a call in there. So it's good to hear from you, Billy. Glad you're here for the rewatch. And yeah, I think I think just we're, we're so much in the story. I love talking about what's in the story. But looking back at season one just from the outside and, and, and having just finished that behind-the-scenes book, the thing that, 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 that almost killed the show, uh, you know, there's a lot of issues with that pilot. But one of the big things is... Uh, the executives kept coming back and people that watched it, friends of Benioff and Weiss saying there's no, there's no scope to this. It's, 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 it's supposed to be an epic and, and we know we didn't, we don't have the budget of Lord of the Rings, but we're going for that essentially. And not, not, not directly, but that's kind of the, that's what's being inferred. And, and we know what the books are. It's not epic. There's no scope and it wasn't super lived in great costume designs. There's some infamous shots of, you know, George R. R. Martin was going to have that cameo. They shot the cameo at the wedding and the original Illyrio Mopathis. You can find that online. And the outfits were great, but they, they weren't dirty. They weren't lived in. It kind of had an unintentional sheen on it, and that was part of it. So you come back, and they get the chance again, and they go forward. And I know Billy's talking a lot about the the, the elements that were in place and the show Um foreshadowing all those kind of things. Uh, Dan and Dave do kind of say that a lot of the details locked in during the season three or, or wrapping up for season three and coming out of season three decisions, maybe they, you know, this is me totally kind of adding words to their uh, mouths, but them kind of seeing where they wanted to go. But by season three details were locked in um, and stuff that was there, you know, uh, the Melisandre, Melisandre Arya Stark moment of, of the Melisandre telling her all the eyes. Um, when Melisandre says again in season eight, I, I believe she switches the order of the eyes to put the emphasis on the blue eyes for what's going about to, about to happen in the Night King. But so some of those, like Billy said, things change or details change. And Betty Alphonse have said, uh, you know, there's some things we look back that we wish we did differently or we if we do now, we do tweak a little bit. We're never going to let you know. But that's the way it is. To go back in season one, I think even more than just plot details and those big decisions, I think some of the bigger ones were there, but they did such a good job of taking that world in those books and making it come to life and making it feel real, and that's what pulled people into the show. It starts with three rangers going north and meeting ice demons, ice zombies. From that, you almost forget that. 
I always say you every time a, a, a white or a white walker is thrown to your face in the show in the first few seasons, you it's not until season well season four you meet the Night King and everything or you know meet him kind of you see him, but season five, hard home everything you never forget it's hanging over you it's there you've lived it you felt it you were there on the shores with Jon Snow too, but up until then you almost forget it, and the reason you forget it is the moment you know the moment uh, Will's head is taken off. You're into politics. You're into life. You're into characters. You're into children and parents and family. One of the big themes of the show, family. Alan Taylor's talked about that, the director in the uh, episode 9 and 10. And you almost forget that you're in this fantasy world. And, and, and the magic is north and the magic is east and it starts kind of maybe moving in. But I think season one establishes that. And that, to your point, Billy, yeah, absolutely. I think there's... All that was kind of present in there, and they got the chance to do it again. And big gamble by HBO. Uh, highly recommend Fire Cannot Kill Dragon. Great read, but the stuff in the beginning is pretty fascinating, hearing it from the folks that were like, yeah, we'll do it again, and why they said we'll do it again, and why they almost didn't do it again, and, and the changes. Everything. It's pretty. It's a fascinating read. So uh, uh, tip of the cap to uh, James Hebert for putting that book out, and, and I, I recommend it. And uh, thanks, Billy. Great call to end season one as we look back on season one of Game of Thrones. The rewatch has begun, and we are going to get into season two. I was thinking of taking a break, but you know what? I think we'll just, like, a week off. Um, but we're going we're gonna to do it. We're going to go into uh, season two next week. So uh, get ready. Season two, episode one, uh, or any of the calls, you can call on in and just, uh, you know, let me know, uh, give a call, say, hey, I want to talk about season two, episode four, season two, episode one, and I'll drop it into the uh, show when appropriate there. Uh, I love hearing from you all. Uh, Talk about it. uh, Talk about your themes. Talk about your favorite scenes, your favorite quotes. Uh, Get it all down there. Let us know and join the conversation here at Casterly Talk. All right. I think... Uh, I think uh, season one, Eric said it. I said 99.9. I'll stick with that, but it's perfect. It, we are spoiled. We're almost too spoiled. It just was almost too good for us. But we all deserve it. We're here to, we're here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to self-loathe. I, I deserve season one. You deserve season one too. Can't wait to talk about season two of Game of Thrones. It is the big rewatch here on Casterly Talk. We'll see you next week. Bye.